Okay, we're going to continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. I uh, had initially planned to just spend, uh, uh, you know, a few weeks on the uh, core values and then just sort of run through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But I think I'm making a change. I don't think we're going to do it like that. I would be wrong. I just don't feel like I can just run through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount because you might get bored with the topic. So I'm going to take my time. I'm just going to work through this. It's too rich. It's too important. It's too paradigm shifting. And we've got to spend time in this. Amen. So uh, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to work through it slowly. And I might be on this till December. Praise God. There's a guy that right now is preaching on the book of Luke. And he's on like his 80-something you know, message on the book of Luke. So I figured if some dude can do 80-something messages in a row on Luke, you can take a few extra ones on the Sermon on the Mount. Amen. So that's what we're going to do. So I'm just going to work us through slowly. We're going to go verse by verse. This is expositional preaching. We're going to go verse by verse through what Jesus was talking about. We're going to allow these words to transform us. We need transformation in our soul. And I need it. And, and what, what we really, it's got to move from is where we hear a message and we just feel like, you know, that thing just, man, that really pierced me to I'm actually heading that direction. You know, it's act, I'm actually going for this. And the Sermon on the Mount is, it's a, to me, it's a lifetime of, uh, of truth that what we do is we continue to head this way for the rest of our lives. You know, I don't know if you ever end up, you know, just nailing it 100%. But what it is is that we have a reach in our heart that we want to have 100-fold, 100% obedience to Jesus' teaching. And so there's a far cry difference between somebody who's got like, you know, a bunch of the things down but realizes there's a few areas that that are just in opposition to the sermon and they're just not going to deal with them. There's a far difference... Uh, between that and somebody who recognizes I've got areas that are not what Jesus said, but I'm reaching, you know, by the grace of God, I'm reaching for these truths to become reality in my life. And so that's what we're going to be. We're going to be a community that reaches for the truths found in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's critical. And he says it multiple times through the sermon, how vitally important these teachings are. So to bring us up to speed, we've spent several weeks now going through uh, what's known as the Beatitudes. I like to call them the core values. And just going through these foundational thoughts of what Jesus said were the, the, the core issues in terms of the, the, uh, the lifestyle. We're to live as, as those in the kingdom. And, and here's where the rubber meets the road on those. Essentially, it's this. This is the value system that those in the kingdom live. If we're not living by that value system, that means we're living by a different value system. And if, and if it's a different value system, then it's not the value system of the kingdom. And that begs the question, which kingdom's value system are we living by? And then you have to take it further, which kingdom are we of? That's an intense thought, but you've got to deal with it. Because I think what's happened over 2,000 years of Christianity is uh, value systems get mixed in and we find mixture, but when you actually just read the scripture, man, it'll locate you. It'll nail you. And so what we want to do is have the Bible dictate to us, not our culture, not our experiences, not our society. We want the scripture to dictate to us what did Jesus say is the value system to live by. And so that's what we're doing. So I want to start then uh, in verse 13 because we've worked through the the eight core values. And now I just want to start to work through this teaching. And uh, to me, it's super important when you're you're reading through anything in the scripture, whether it's one of the epistles or or one of the Old Testament prophets or or, or the Psalms or, or Jesus speaking, it's really, really helpful to understand the context of the, you know, what he's saying there, the, the passage. Uh, it, it's helpful to know who it is, where he's speaking, and then just to read the whole thing and understand what's the package here. And, uh, and so when you, when you see the Sermon on the Mount, um, what will happen is, in my Bible, and it's probably the same in many of your Bibles, there'll be headings that separate sections. 
But you got to think about it. The hearers heard it all in one stream, one stream of, of conversation, of communication from the Lord. And so uh, he didn't necessarily break it up. Now, he had different uh, points and different topics and different things he touched as he's going through the sermon, for sure. But sometimes uh, the, the way he breaks it up and the way he segments it out, it's not exactly... Uh, the way that um, the Bible has, you know, the Bible uh, publishers have broken it out. And so um, I want to begin to read in verse 13. But verse 13 has everything to do with verse 12. And verse 11 and verse 10. And so we're going to read verse 13. And we're going to go through uh, verse 20 today. But just, we got we to understand where this is coming from. Okay, so let's just look at it. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so just for our sake, for the teaching's sake, I want to just point this out to you. Verse 13 through 16 goes with verse 1 through 12. Okay? Verse 13 through 16 goes with verse 1 through 12. And then verse 17 through 20 goes with 21 through 48. So 13 through 16 is summary thoughts on verse 1 through 12. And then 17 through 20, it's... uh, it's uh, preface thoughts to 21 through 48. Okay? So when we're looking at 13 through 16, we're looking at this thing about salt of the earth. The main point you got to get is that's in light of the core values he's just given us. Okay? When, when you take 13 and you just take it out of context and you go, okay, you're the salt of the earth. It's not exactly... The way Jesus was dealing with that salt of the earth, light of the world idea, the the big concept, this is the big point, the salt of the earth, light of the world idea, when he says that's what you are, salt and light, it's in view of living the core values that he just gave. That's the critical point. Believers living the core values are salt and light. Believers living them are salt and light. The contrary is also important to understand. Believers who do not live the core values are not salt and light. That is important to understand. So, we can run around saying, uh, we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world, But if we don't have a lifestyle that's pursuing the value system of the Sermon on the Mount, you're not that salty and you're not that lighty. Okay? And that's his clear point here. Now look at it. Let's just work through it. He gives us two metaphors. Metaphors. Salt and light. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? I think I'm actually now in a NIV. Yeah, I think I just used my Bible program with NIV. So there it is. 
You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Whoa. I mean, that should make us all go, whoa. Salt without saltiness. Saltiness equals the life living the value system that he just gave. Salt without saltiness is only good to be thrown out. That's imp- that is so important, beloved. We can't just look at these t- you know, thoughts and go, that's a nice teaching. Good word, brother. No, this has got to be swallowed and, I mean, chewed and swallowed and embraced and, and, and move us. It's got to dictate how we live our life. It's got to become our values. Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger for righteousness, mercy. These things have got to become our values. Being a peacemaker, laying our lives down, pure in heart. Persecuted for righteousness. These things, faithful, faithfulness through persecution, they've got to become our lifestyle. Because salt, without saltiness, it's not salt. What he says is it's trash. It's, it's just all it's good for is being thrown away. So, what does salt bring? What does salt do? Salt, when salt is used, it's, it's, it, it's application is uh, it's got several things it does it it will it will purify it will use, it's used as a cleansing agent it's also used as a preserving agent it, but it's it's flavor it, it brings contrast it, it, it brings a difference that's the idea now here's the point that Jesus is trying to give us Christians living the values of the kingdom in the world will begin to cause the world to be purified That lifestyle is a contagion. What it means is it will will expand to others. It will infect others. When people actually see Christians being Christians, they go, oh my goodness. They either go, I'm going to kill that, or oh my goodness, I want to be that. That's it. They either persecute it, or, as he says, right here, let your, in verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. There's the other side. See, verse 10 through 12 goes, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness. That's one side of it. But the other side of it is the contagious side where people go, no, I know that person and I know what they're living and I know what they used to be and what they are now. And they go, that's God. That's God. Because... That guy's not like that. But now he is. And so that's the point of verse 16. On the one side, you live for righteousness and you get persecution. On the other side, you live for righteousness, the value system of the kingdom, and it causes others to be purified, to glorify God. The purifying power of salt, salt in the world, causes others to glorify God. Now here's the point. You might have to go through the persecution so that you can actually be the purifying agent. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes the very guy that's sitting there persecuting you ends up being the very guy that gets convicted and converted. You ever had that happen to you? One minute they're talking bad about you, saying all these things about you. you know, they're, they're dogging you out behind your back. And then the, the next minute they come and they go, hey, I, I really, I need you to pray for me. I remember I, I had this job at, years ago when I was, I was selling cell phones. And this was when cell phones were something that rich people had. You know, now everybody's got a cell phone. But uh, so these people, these business people would come in and, 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 you know, they were high dollar cell phones. And the, the service plans were real expensive. And, and so the salespeople that sold these cell phones, they were making tons of money. And they were all like 25-year-old you know, wild partier kind of people. So they're just too much money driving, you know, super expensive cars and just living wild. And so I, I, 
why I'm working there, I have no idea, but I'm there. And, uh, and I'm, I'm living for Jesus, and, and just, you know, it's a rough environment. Just like, you know, many of you who work in the world, you have, some of you have, you know, easier environments, some of you have more difficult. This is one of the more difficult environments. Well, these guys would make fun of me. I mean, they would, they would do all sorts of stuff. I remember one time they ordered a stripper and didn't tell me about it. They ordered a stripper for the boss. She came in and she started taking her clothes off. I, had to, I ran, literally ran out of the building. Praise God. This is, this is, this is life in the real world. And, and this is just how it was. I mean, it was just, it, these were partier people, and, and that's just how they were. They're sinners. They're really good at it. And so uh, I just... I just did my best to live for Jesus day in and day out. And they would mock me, and they were saying stuff about, about me. And it was, it was a little rough. But when, I, when time came for me to transition, I was getting ready to, to take a new position. It was interesting. It was all of a sudden my office turned into a counseling office. And these guys, I mean, these, some of them were on drugs. I mean, just living wild lives. They would come in my office and go, you know, I've watched you for the last two and a half years. And this thing is real, isn't it? And I'd go, yeah. And they'd go, would you just pray for me? Would you just pray for me that I just, I would, give, I would give my life to God? I mean, it was wild. I'm like, you want to give your life to God? Well, I just, my life's a wreck. You know, and, and you know, driving sports cars, money, my life's so broken. And all it was, was a little guy, I was like 19, 20 years old, just living for Jesus. Just, you know, just not compromising. And just, just that little bit of saltiness, it began to, purify a little bit that place and I was in I was in shock because the very ones that were persecuting me were the very ones that were all of a sudden now they wanted to glorify God sometimes you have to walk through the persecution before you can be that purifying element amen and so that salt it brings purity it brings preservation when there are righteous in the city the city doesn't undergo judgment at the same level remember the issue with lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember the Lord said, if I can find ten righteous, I won't do the judgment. There wasn't ten. It brings a preserving reality to the world. Salt preserves, you know, meats. Salt, in terms of righteousness, preserves the earth. And the other thing is it brings contrast. We would call it Flavor. We love, you know, some of you guys are just salt fiends. You just salt everything. You know, you get the French fries and you load it down with salt. It's like, hey, watch, watch out. For too much salt guy. But uh, salt, uh, it, it brings contrast. It's a, it's a flavor to the earth. And, and the point that he makes about the salt is it's actually got to be different. It's supposed to be different. Beloved, this is so important. Salt is supposed to have a flavor to it that's different than the norm. And here's what we've done in the church. We have tried to make the gospel so palatable, so presentable, that we would look just like the the world so they can come in and easily receive the gospel. And I'm telling you, there is something really wrong if we look just like the world, we sound just like the world, we dress just like the world, and there's no difference. That's a real problem. I was talking to a a pastor the other day, and he goes, and he said said the same thing on my heart. He goes, I I don't remember when uh, there became this requirement that worship leaders had to be rock stars and, uh, and pastors had to be movie stars. But that's, I mean, that is almost the status right now. It's like we've got, we're trying to impress the world so much. Let me tell you something. People living the gospel, living the value system of the kingdom, actually doing this deal and not compromising, actually praying and getting results, that will be impressive when the world sees it. We've got to become those people that are living the values that actually, there's contrast in our life. There's difference in our life. So that we actually look different. We don't look the same. We don't blend in. Salt is supposed to be salty. You're supposed to taste it. They should get around you and, and feel it and, 
and, and sense the difference. There should be a life that's lived out. And that's what he's trying to get us to do is live this life out. Live out the contrast. And so when he says salt that has no savior, savor, it can't be saved. Salt that loses its saltiness, you can't get it re-salty. He's talking about the life that was righteous and then it began to blend in. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, it chokes the word and it looks just like the world. Beloved, we need a reformation in our values. I mean, I'm talking about this place, but I'm talking about all of us, the the, the church. We need a salty, salty value system. And he says this, I mean, really strong thing from the mouth of Jesus how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Wow. So verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Another couple metaphors, metaphors, light and a city. Well, the bride is a city. We know that. The new Jerusalem is where the bride will live and we have our citizenship in heaven. But this issue of the light of the world, I think that's so interesting. And here's why. Because in the book of John, Jesus said this twice. I am the light of the world. In John 8 and in John 9. He called himself the light of the world. Now what, what's fascinating to me is, he's saying the same thing about the church. And what it is, is that the church is to look So much like Jesus because she lives the values that Jesus lives and Jesus has. She's supposed to look so much like Jesus that you can rightly say of the church, the church is the light just like Jesus is the light. Now what's light do? It shows you where to go in darkness. It gives you direction and vision. It helps you to see. It gives clarity. The moral compass of the the earth should be the declaration and the lifestyle that comes from the people of God. It should be the light that shows truth. We are the light of the world as we live these values, as we live this value system. This is critical. What happens when the light isn't light anymore? What happens? Moral relativism. Humanism. The world doesn't understand what's righteous and what's unrighteous. And the responsibility falls, beloved, on us. There's got to be a a clarity, a clear proclamation of righteousness with lives that back it up. With lives that back it up. That's why we don't have any power. Because the, the, the world looks at the church and they go, well, they're, you know, they're these holier than thou's. But they don't live what they say. (laughs) Come on, man. I'm on your team. I'm on your side. This is us together. This is real. The, The world is unimpressed with the church because we don't live what we say. We're not salty. We look just like them. And we don't have power to back up our prayers. And the reason why we don't have power is because we're not living the kingdom values in our heart. If the kingdom would come in our heart, the kingdom would come in the earth. The light of the world. You're the light of the world. That is a, that's a colossal statement. You're the light of the world. And we go, well, Jesus is the light. He goes, and so are you when you live the way I've told you to live. When you say yes in the grace of God to the value system that I've given you. When you live this value system, you'll be a beacon that will show others the direction. You'll be the, the beacon that shows the, comp- that's the compass. This is, this is incredibly important. It brings vision, clarity, direction. Now, here's interest- it's interesting here. Because in 16, he says, just like you can't put a light under a bowl, instead you put it up on a post and it's supposed to shine so everybody can see. He goes, now in the same way, 
Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So there's the, there's the counterpoint to them persecuting us. They see good deeds and then they, they get converted. But here's the thing. This verse stands in tension with Matthew 6.1. So just flip right there to Matthew 6.1. Now he just said, do your... Uh, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, right? That's what he said, right? 6.1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no, re- no reward from your Father in heaven. Well, how do these two verses square? We live... The value system of the kingdom boldly. We live it boldly. With with a confidence in God, we give ourselves to living this value system out. You know, meekness and and, and mourning and hunger for righteousness with a heart that's poor in spirit, recognizing our need for God. Merciful. We, We live these things out pure in heart. We live it boldly, unapologetically unapologetic, that's what he's calling us to be. Be an unapologetic light. And when men see that, they'll think it's authentic. That's his idea. Well, in 6.1, he goes, now, don't do your charitable deeds before men. And then he gives you the, the important phrase, to be seen by men. And that's the identifier. There's a difference in falling in love with Jesus And saying, I love you, Jesus, and I want to live this value system. I want to live what you've prescribed. I want to do it day in and day out. Transform me. Let me be conformed to your image and live the value system and the characteristics you've you've called me to live. There's a difference in that and looking at what looks righteous and, and doing righteous deeds to receive praise from men and positions and platforms, and performance. And that's what he's nailing. And that's the difference. You boldly live the value system because of the love of God for the glory of God. That's what he calls us to in Matthew 5. And then in 6, he says, now don't live the value system and the characteristics so men will appreciate you, so men will, will promote you. You don't do it for men's pleasure. You do it for heaven's pleasure. That, beloved, is the heart of what we call priestliness. It's a heart of priestliness. We are, Jesus called us, a kingdom of priests. And so a priestly heart is, how do I minister to you first? A priest ministers to God on behalf of men, and then to men on behalf of God. And so the heart of a priest says, I am doing this unto you, God, because I love you. In other words, I'm merciful. When I I operate in mercy, I'm not operating in mercy because a person deserves it. I'm operating in mercy because I'm pleasing him. Do you see it? And so your relationship with the Lord is the motivator for all of these other areas. When you serve, when you bless, when you give, when you offer... Yes, it's a, it's a blessing to others, but the, the key core motivation is, I'm loving you with this God. You see? So when you, when you have the opportunity to give, it's, it's a love note to Jesus. And that's why in our offerings, we say, let's, let's worship the Lord with our giving. We're loving Him through giving. You know, when, when, you, when, you, when you do an act of charity, when you're serving someone or blessing someone, whatever you're doing, you're preferring someone. It's not because it's going to make you feel better. You don't do it so people will think, wow, they're really, that's a really spiritual person. You do it because you're in love with Jesus. You go, I want to help them because I love you, God. I love you, God. I want to bless I love you, God. I want to be humble. I love you, God. I want to forgive. I love you, God. I want to give. I love you. I love you. I want my life to be a love song. I want my life to be a love note. I'm telling you, the needs that we see are not enough to motivate us to good works. For a minute they will, 
But over the long haul of a life, the, thing, the only thing that's great enough to motivate you is loving God. It's His love that compels our hearts. Needs for a moment will compel us, but loving God will compel us. And that's the difference between what he's saying in, in, in chapter 5, 16, and, and, and chapter 6, 1. In, one, in 5.16, we're living the value system boldly because we love Jesus and our light is shining before men. In 6.1, what he's saying is he goes, don't do it so men can see it, but do it because you love God. That's the difference. And so you can be bold about being meek. You can be bold about being merciful. You can be bold about hungering for righteousness because you love him. And when that light shines, men will see it. And many will be converted. Many will see that light. And they will glorify God. I love that. All right, Matthew 5, verse 17. Let's just work through this. This is an important point that sets up the next 28 verses. Okay, so we're transitioning now in the sermon. Verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what he's saying is, I'm getting ready to teach some stuff now. And what I'm about to teach, you could misunderstand me and think that I'm saying that the law and the prophets are out and what I'm saying is in. He goes, that's not what I'm doing at all. Because what I'm doing is, I'm not coming to abolish the Old Testament. What I'm coming to do is give teaching that explains to you what it is and live the fulfillment of everything that they said. That's critical because I used to be a guy that only read the New Testament. Anybody ever heard that? Just, just read the New Testament. You don't have to worry about the Old Testament. The Old Testament's just sort of out. <laughs> We're in the New Testament. Just focus on Paul's epistles. And for years in my Christianity, I didn't read the Old Testament. You know what? I realized I didn't understand half of what I was reading in the New Testament because I never read the Old Testament. I didn't have the, the backdrop of what Jesus was doing in his whole ministry. His whole ministry, beloved, is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You've got to sort of have this as the backdrop of the Old Testament so you can understand what, what's Paul talking about in Galatians. What's he even talking about? Reading the book of Revelations... Revelation, you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you've got a, a picture of what's going on in the Old Testament. I mean, a hundred plus references and quotations from the Old Testament just in the book of Revelation. And so for the longest time, I, I thought, oh, well, all you do is you just read the New Testament because we're, we're born again. We're in a you know, new dispensation of grace or whatever. And, and we're in the church age, so just read the New Testament. But Jesus I mean, this is critical. Jesus goes, I didn't come to say that that's all over. I came to explain it to you in a way that's got Holy Spirit revelation on it and actually be the living fulfillment of everything those guys were pointing to. That's pretty awesome. And so then you can get major understanding of the storyline if you understand what's going on through the Law and the Prophets. So he goes, I, haven't, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest, look at these, these words, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by, me, by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He goes, it's not going away. It's going to be fulfilled. What the law and the prophets was about, the, the whole heart of the Old Testament is all going to be accomplished. Verse 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So, summarizing it, Jesus says the problem isn't the law and the prophets. The problem is how it's been taught. He goes, now, the law and the prophets isn't going away. Everything that those guys started and declared and proclaimed, it's all going to come to pass. In fact, I'm the living fulfillment of it. You just see, you just watch. 
my teachings and my life are the living fulfillment of everything that's been laid out. In, in other words, I am the point of what all those thousands of years and declarations, what it was all building to is me, God in the flesh. That's huge. That's really huge. You're not as excited about it? <laughs> Maybe. I'm super excited about it. Because, I mean, can you imagine sitting there? You're a Jew. All you can see is the law and the prophets. Jesus goes, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, I'm the guy. And let me make it real clear. I didn't come to do away with the law. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the reason why God chose Abram. I'm the reason why God pulled Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'm the reason. I'm the reason why God got Abram and this Iraqi and made a great nation out of him. That's me. I'm the one the prophets have all been talking about. I'm not changing it. I am it. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) This whole thing, what's beautiful to me is this whole story It's one seamless story that finds its fulfillment in Christ. And then Paul says things like the mystery that's been hidden from the ages past, but has now been revealed to us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh my God. See, I want to run right now. I want to take a lap or two because (laughs) he's he's dealing with the main point. He goes, "I'm I'm not a new teacher. I'm not coming to just sort of give my new spin or my new doctrine. I am the doctrine. I'm the word made flesh. Everything they said, everything they prophesied, I am him. Oh my goodness. Because the problem's not with the law and the prophets. It's just the way you've understood it. It's me you need to see. It's my word you need to hear. And it's my life you need to drink from. I've come to fulfill it all. Oh, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. Jesus, the end of the prophets. Jesus, the one they prophesied about walking on the planet now. Oh, beloved. So he goes, it's it's not the law and the prophets that's a problem. The problem is we need Holy Spirit revelation. That's essentially what he's saying. Because I'm not doing any away with any of it. I'm actually going to fulfill all of it. My life and my teachings will fulfill all of it. And it's all going to come to pass. Heaven and earth will not pass away. It's all coming to pass. All the prophetic verses in in, in the Old Testament, they're all coming to pass. He said, I'm going to see to it because I'm the fulfillment of all of it. Well, then he goes on to say this. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men... So shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That is such an important verse. Now, when he says the least of these commandments, he's not particularly or specifically talking about just the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the law and the prophets fulfilled in Christ. He's talking about who he is and what he is giving us. He's essentially boiling it back down to the Sermon on the Mount. He goes, if you teach people to break these things, the fulfillment of the law and my teachings in life is the idea, the, the, the sermon on the If you teach people to break these things, you will be called, and he uses this phrase, and this is a little tricky phrase, but he's going to define it for us in a second. He uses this little phrase, least in the kingdom of heaven. We'll deal with that in a minute. But he goes, if you will live them and teach others to do likewise, you will be called great. In the kingdom of heaven. That is such a colossal statement. And here's why. He just leveled the playing field for you and for me. You mean I don't have to have a mega ministry and influence a million people? No. You mean I don't have to have a television ministry? No. You mean I don't have to have, I don't have to, you know, be the person that gave a billion dollars? Nope. What do I have to do to be considered great in your kingdom? He goes, 
Live and teach the Sermon on the Mount. Greatness in the kingdom is defined by living and teaching the Sermon on the Mount values. You mean I don't have to do, you know, all these huge exploits and be able to point to all this stuff? Live and teach the Sermon on the Mount. And that defines greatness in the kingdom. Now, is it to say we shouldn't do great exploits? No, whatever God calls you to do. But here's the point. If he calls you to win a billion people for Jesus, or if he calls you to be the vacuum cleaner that vacuums the carpet, the pay is the same if you'll live and teach the Sermon on the Mount. Greatness is defined by living and teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That just, oh, my gosh. So I can be a paper delivery boy and live and teach the Sermon on the Mount and I'm great in the kingdom. Yep. I can be a garbage man, live and teach the Sermon on the Mount and I'm great in the kingdom. Yep. I can be a doctor and a lawyer and live and teach the Sermon on the Mount and I'm great in the kingdom. Yes. So you're telling me that it's not about my sphere, my influence, my bank account, my social class, my gender, my race. You're telling me that greatness in the kingdom is defined by living and teaching the Sermon on the Mount? Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, that changes everything. Because it doesn't matter what your particular job is. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter... You know, your ethnicity, your nationality, your socioeconomic class. None of that matters. The value system of the kingdom. He who, let's just make sure I'm reading this right. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, the success of a ministry, the success of a life, is not gauged by all these human trappings. It's not gauged by any of that. It's gauged by how much they live and declare the truth from the Sermon on the Mount. Now that is a massive paradigm shift for most of us because we have, most of us have a lens that says all these natural things are what shows whether or not we're successful or not. But I want to propose to you this. You say yes to Jesus. You say yes to his calling on your life. You say yes. And perhaps his calling on your life leaves you completely obscure and unknown to everyone. And what you do is you live the values of the Sermon on the Mount... And you teach them to your kids. Maybe that's the entirety of your platform. Maybe the entirety of your platform is two people. You're gonna, here's what's going to happen. You do that for a lifetime. You're going to show up and he's going to go, Oh, whoa, stop. Hold on. A great one has just walked in. Go, Who is that? I've never seen that person. No. They are great in the kingdom. They're going to, what? He's going to go, put on the video. And we'll watch 50 years of obscurity as the person leaned in to mercy and meekness and poverty of spirit, serving and giving and fasting and prayer. And I'll go, see this life. It's great in my eyes. Beloved, it changes everything. None of the normal things that we think is what makes one great. It's not what he's talking. None of those things are, are what Jesus says makes you great. Living his values. Really living, living them. Not listening to me talk about them. Li- you living them. Not listening to me teach about them. And, and, and let me just say this to you. Just because I'm teaching them, beloved, I've got to live them. It makes it twice as scary. Do you know how freaked out I am sometimes? I look at my name on that little book, The Culture of the Kingdom. I've got a book about the Sermon on the Mount. I go, oh God, have mercy on me. Because you don't want to be the guy that has the book and then doesn't live it, I promise. I mean, can you imagine that day you show up and he goes, hey, nice book. Let's watch the video. I mean, 
huh, that, that's, I, just, I don't want that. I want to live this thing. But this is what salt is about. This is what light is about. This is what greatness is about, beloved. Great in the kingdom. See, you're all made for greatness. Every one of us is made for greatness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will exalt you. That's not mostly about getting your job promotion. I promise you. That's not mostly about going and working as a dishwasher and then you become a waiter. It's not what that's about. You work your way up the ladder. You know what it's about? It's about living this life in virtual obscurity, serving and blessing others for the glory and the praise and the love of God unto this, that on the day when your life is revealed, he goes, enter in the joy, into the joy of your master, great one, great in the kingdom. This value system in teaching is so critical. The implications are vast as it relates to the earth, as it relates to our effectiveness in the earth, but they are so vast as it relates to who we are in the kingdom. This cannot be just simply, oh, that's a nice teaching. This has got to be embraced and lived and taught. Greatness in the kingdom is about living and teaching the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you what, a ministry's effectiveness will be judged by how much the followers live and teach the Sermon on the Mount. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. See, I don't know if that, I don't know if, if you feel the same. I go, that, that, that scares me. I go, oh my gosh. It's not about how many people got healed. It's not even about how many people got saved. It's about living and teaching the Sermon on the Mount. It should be called Great in the kingdom. So he goes, well, you're kind of just distilling it down to one point. Well, yeah, the, you know, when Jesus uses this term great in the kingdom, there's a couple other things he calls great in the kingdom. Becoming just like a child and living completely in obscurity and meekness and humility. Great in the kingdom. Oh, beloved. Meanwhile, in chapter 7, he's going to say there's going to be people that will stand there and go, I, I cast demons out of people. I healed all sorts of people. I did all these exploits in your name. And he's going, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. The value system, the kingdom come in the life, the kingdom come in the heart, the values lived out and taught and, and, and walked through with a heart lean. I'm not saying we'll ever, I, mean, I don't even know if we'll ever get this thing perfect. We lean for it, that we go for it. In the grace of God, we say yes. We say, God, transform me. And man, the value system lived out in the heart. Oh, it's greatness in the kingdom. And then he finalized it. I'm ending here. And he says, your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now remember that little phrase he said, uh, if you don't teach them and if you don't live them, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. Right there, he's giving us the definition of what least. It's in the eyes of the kingdom of heaven. That's the idea. It's like, from the vantage point of the kingdom of heaven, you will be called least. And it equals what the Pharisees did. They broke the law and they justified themselves. And he said, and that gives you no entrance to the kingdom. And so in context here, when he says least, he's saying that means you don't, equal, you don't enter. Because it's through the lens, through the, it's a least in the eyes of the kingdom. Which equals not entering, just like the Pharisees. Now here's what he says about the Pharisees. Matthew 23, last verse. What's he talking about when he says, your righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? What's he talking about? Well, he expresses it so powerfully in Matthew 23. It's the most blistering chapter. I mean, you don't want to be on the other end of Matthew 23. Verse 2. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. He 
he identifies what he's talking about. When he says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. He goes, it cannot be simply some external show for men. And that's why he nails it so hard in Matthew 6. He goes, it's got to be the inner reality lived out with a heart motivated for the love and glory of God. That's what it's got to be. Beloved, let me just make this point. This is not a to-do list that you can wake up tomorrow morning going, I'm going to really do better. In fact, if you think it is, I encourage you to try to do the to-do list and then just fail real bad and then you'll come back on your knees to God going, help! Because what this is, is a yes in the heart that's empowered by grace with a lean toward living righteously. This is grace that enables this. This is not your flesh or another striving or, you know, what is New Year's resolution. That's not, no. This only comes by grace. Yes, and in grace, you say yes, and in grace, you head this direction, and in grace, you're empowered to walk this out. Don't make it another to-do list. You'll fail miserably, but sometimes that's what we need. We need to fail miserably sometimes to ask God for grace. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, and and he's, he's just dealing again with that issue, it can't be some external show. It can't just be the way it looks to other people. It's got to be the reality that's in your heart. It's got to be real on the inside. Amen. We're going to keep going. We're just going to plow through this. This is too important. If this defines greatness in the kingdom, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's just lean in. Let's just hang on. Buckle our chin straps. Come in with your football pads on. You won't get beat up too bad, you know. Let's just go for it. You can tell it's football season. All my analogies for the next three months are going to be football probably. All right, let's stand. I want to, I want to just give a call right now. Some of you, you felt, you felt the Lord, like a special something from the Lord when I was saying this is what defines greatness in the kingdom. Living and teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to pray particularly for those who feel a, a, a calling or an invitation from the Lord to, to be a, a, a proclaimer of the Sermon on the Mount. One who lives it out and proclaims it. If that's you, I just want to invite you forward. I know we can all answer it. I'm, I'm just asking for if you felt the Lord just kind of highlighting that to you in a fresh way. To live and proclaim it.